Welcome to Intangibles Podcast. I'm Steve Berg, your host. Success is driven by how as much as by what. How we communicate, how we lead, how we relate to our environment are all vitally important. Intangibles is a podcast that explores the underlying traits, qualities, and behaviors that improve the how. This is accomplished by finding the people who have studied and been successful practicing these soft skills and having informed conversations with them to get to what is learnable. Let's begin. What happens to a frog's car when it breaks down? It gets towed away. Ah, that's kind of stupid, right? But it makes you smile. It turns out that it does more than that. It's good for your health and it's good for your business. Many people don't really consider this as they go about their daily lives. Today, we are going to. Andrew Tarvin, or as he prefers, Drew Tarvin, is the world's first humor engineer, teaching thousands of people at over 200 organizations, including P&G, GE, and Microsoft, how to get better results while having more fun. He's a best-selling author of a couple of books, my favorite being Humor That Works, He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and TEDx, and he's delivered programs in 50 states, 18 countries, and three continents. In the spirit of the topic, he loves the color orange, and he's obsessed with chocolate. Hello, Drew. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on Intangibles. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, having me, Steve. I'm excited to be here. I wondered just exactly who to have this discussion with for a long time before I came across your TED Talk, and then it became instantly clear to me, so I'm pretty excited about it. I would ask, is there anything about your bio that I didn't mention that you think is important? Um, I mean, just the engineer in me is, there's there's a few updates to some of the numbers you mentioned. I'm now, uh, and so that's probably on me, I need to update, because I'm at 30 countries and six continents now uh, that I've spoken on. And uh, yeah, the TEDx talk that you mentioned, a uh, little over 8 million views, uh, only half of which were my mom. So feeling pretty good about uh, uh, the talk itself. But no, I think the, the bio is pretty good. The one thing that is interesting, I think, to people is the background of why I talk about this because my degree is in computer science and engineering and that's what people are oftentimes confused by. So yep, um, computer science engineering degree uh, from Ohio State, or sorry, the Ohio State University and project management experience at uh, Procter & Gamble. So sometimes it's like, oh, so it wasn't just born funny? Nope, it's something that's learned a little bit later, which I'm sure we can chat about. Go Buckeyes. Okay, my preamble is this. Humor is a form of personal expression that's been essentially banished from business by serious people who do serious things, right? Humor is frivolous. Humor is time-wasting. Humor is distracting from the point. Except that it's not. Most people aren't serious all the time. Most human beings in general want to communicate in a way that is soulful with other people who are also human beings that have souls. And... We know that people in general, they seek authenticity and they also feel trust when they believe they know the other person and they can only get to know that other person if that other person reveals themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the reasons why humor as a form of personal expression is particularly valid and perhaps even important uh, in this equation. So um, why... To start with the big question, why is humor such an effective form of communication? 
It's a it's a great question, and and where by by way of a little bit of background, where this kind of came full force to me was um, I remember being in this meeting at Procter and Gamble. So I had graduated, um, had done well in school and everything. Get this kind of this career job. I think I'm going to be at P and G for the rest of my life, etc. And I remember being in this meeting that was so boring, right? Like it was like so boring. It made me want to cry levels of boring, like to the point, one of those meetings that you're in and you're just like daydreaming about all the other things that you wish you could be doing. And they're, they're not necessarily even exciting things. You're not like, I wish I was skydiving right now. You're like, I wish I was folding my laundry. Like I wish I was doing an errand or or something. And the problem with this particular meeting was that I was the one leading the meeting and I had this kind of realization where it's like, if I'm bored while talking, they have to be bored while listening. And I had a little bit of this existential crisis where I was like, is this the rest of my life, right? Is the rest of my life boring meetings followed by boring emails followed by more boring meetings? And um, I was talking to a friend of mine about it. And this particular friend was someone who had got me doing improv and stand up in college. And he's like, you know, we learned all this stuff about improv and stand-up. Can you bring any of that? We have so much fun when we did improv and stand-up together. Can you bring any of that into it? And to kind of come back and answer that question that like solved this particular challenge of boredom for me, it comes down to kind of a simple dumb question. And the simple dumb question is, would you rather do something that is fun or not fun? That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Right? Simple, simple, dumb kind of question. But it, uh, people would say, uh, most people would say fun unless they're like, is it illegal or does it cost money or something like that? But for the most part, they're like, no, I'm going to do something that is fun. And so it stands to reason that if you were to make your uh, emails a little bit more fun, do you think people would be more likely to respond to them? If you are to make your meetings a little bit more fun, do you think people would be more likely to attend? If you are to make your communication in general a little bit more fun, do you think people would pay more attention. And the the research tells us, yes, right? This isn't just me kind of like pontificating, wondering this. It's like there's actual research that shows that we can use humor to get people to pay attention, to help them remember things a little bit longer. And I think it goes back to the idea of, oh, well, if this is more fun, if this is more enjoyable, I want more of it. And in that process, I might be learning something or getting to know you better or, you know, all these other side benefits or these kind of primary reasons why we might use humor included. Okay, so if fun is the metric, um, let's talk about, and you started to mention it, I think, how fun, I was thinking of it as joy, but I think fun is equally good. Um, You know, what the impact of that is, um, you know, I don't want to say statistically, but when when I start to quantify it, Right. What's the what? You know, how does that? How does that? What's the impact of fun? Right. What What is that doing for me that makes the difference? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you can you can think about it from a, a couple of different um, perspectives. Like from a business perspective, from the engineer side, or from the you know CEO of a company or the leadership side, the the benefit of it is 
you know, you can think of 70% of the workforce is disengaged. Uh, that comes from Gallup. And they estimate that that costs the U.S. economy about $500 billion in lost productivity every single year. Now, I'm an engineer. I love math. Uh, I don't think of them as math problems, but math opportunities, uh, right? So this is an opportunity for math. So if we know that 70% are disengaged and that's U.S. economy uh, cost is $500 billion, if you do the math in terms of number of uh, disengaged employees, then the average cost of a disengaged employee is 4630 $38. And so then if you start to think of like, okay, well, if they were to get more engaged in their work, which humor and research shows that people who are having fun at work are actually more engaged or less likely to leave, et cetera, then you could say, oh, okay, what would the impact be on my organization if I took 70 people and made them more engaged? Oh, well, potentially, you know, savings of four or increase in productivity of say $4,638, right? So you, you can do numeric math about that. You can do that for healthcare costs. You can do it for turnover. You can do it for uh, employee and workplace satisfaction. But I think outside of the, the numeric value as an individual the value of humor or say fun in this case is twofold. One is that it does get better results as we kind of uh, alluded to, like when it's more fun, people are more likely to stay engaged. When uh, they know that, oh, if I go to this meeting, I'm going to actually laugh and have a good time. I want to show up for that meeting. Or when this, if this manager, this person who is a leader of mine, uh, makes me feel good about myself, is positive, and kind of those things, oh, I'm going to work a little bit harder for them. So you get better results by doing it. We can talk about the specific benefits of that. Um, but then the other kind of flip side of it is the average person will spend 90,000 hours at work in their lifetime, right? The average person works 90,000 hours in their lifetime. That is longer than everything that is on Netflix, that is like a long period of time. And so part of it is if we're going to spend that much time, we might as well find ways to enjoy that time rather than being like, all right, I'm just going to go to work and suffer through work so that I can live for the weekend or I can live for the end of the day. It's like, why not find ways to enjoy what you're doing every single day? Cause you're spending so much time doing it. Yeah. So let's take that and go a little bit more atomic or a little bit more behavioral psychology, right? You know, when I think about it, I think about, you know, I, someone tells a funny joke and I remember it, right? Once I've got a more memorable image, it's kind of more indelibly imprinted on me and, well, that makes me more productive, right? That, 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 that I'd rather be folding my laundry moment isn't I'd rather be folding my laundry. It's remember at 11.35, you said this, right? Um, or to me, it's, um, you know, wow, never heard that before. That distinctive nature, that novelty is a, just a, a more effective form of communication than, than the otherwise kind of automatonic drivel that, that, you know, is often, you know, repeated over and over and over and over again. So, um, I don't well, know. It's, it's it's why I think that you know some people consider stand-up comedians as the philosophers of today's time is that it is it they say things in a way that then it like resonates with you and you sit with it and you remember it a little bit longer because it was an interesting turn of phrase or it was a really funny joke you remember that you know feeling of like laughter or joy in that moment and yeah you absolutely remember it a little bit more you're more likely to make that impact because i think you know sometimes we're told to do certain things and then if, if you can find the comedy in it and turn that situation around it's like oh 
okay, now I actually see that perspective a little bit more. Now it makes a little bit more sense to me. I'm going to actually incorporate that into the way that I behave. Yeah, that the, the receptivity just increases. Um, okay, so we, I, we, I was kind of angling about something about the humanness of humor, right? Machines don't, for, for all we know at the moment, have a sense of humor. Um, I view humor... Uh, everybody's got their own sense of humor. Yours is different than mine. Um, so I view it as a way that humanizes us, right? And that creates a different type of connection. I don't know if you have a, a, a thought on on that. Um, but I feel like if one human talks to another human, um, there's more likely good things that can happen. Oh, for sure. Well, and I think that, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of truth to that, you know, Victor Borg said the shortest distance between two people is a smile. And part of that is physiological, right? We are primed as humans in our brain with mirror neurons to mirror certain behavior. A smile is one of them. Laughter is one of them. Weirdly, uh, like, yoo-hoo, like type, like kind of like just jolt of thing is another one that, you know, studies have found is like another thing that we just kind of like mirror, kind of have this like visceral response to. And so smiling and laughter, though, as part of humor is this bonding connection. And, and you know, we joke and, and talk about like to humor is to human. It is a very kind of human thing. And it's kind of like, is it coincidence that they both start H-U-M? Right, they both start aging. It's it is complete coincidence. They come from different root words, but right, it's a very authentic and human experience, and that is something that we're seeking more in our relationships and in work. Because so often, and and this is my my guess, uh, Steve. It's just a guess, but my guess is that many of the people listening to this right now are likable people with their friends. I met some of these people. I don't right. know. Andrew. I don't know about that. Right. But they're likable people with their friends, but then they get into work mode, right? The laptop comes up or they go into the office. And for some people, they become this shell of a human being where at home they, you know, they laugh, they smile. They maybe even are a little bit silly from time to time. And then they go into this workplace and they feel like they have to put this work face on. And they're like, no work, 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 work. And maybe that made sense in the industrial revolution. Maybe it made sense if you're on a factory line and the only thing that you're doing is stamping plates, like maybe, right? You don't have to be your full authentic self, but if you're doing any type of knowledge work, any type of creative work, and you're not bringing your full authentic self, then you're, you're going to be limited in terms of your own capacity or your own mental energy or your own motivation to get stuff done. And so when you can bring your full self to work, of which humor is a big part, then you're not only more fulfilled in life, but you also do the work better. Yeah. You know, you started the, the answer to the question, uh, I'm talking about relationships. And, and, and my view is that that quirkiness, that, that individuality, that is how relationships get formed. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a shot. The, the nice thing is, so we know from psychology that uh, people become closer together when they have a shared experience. And that can be a positive shared experience or a negative shared experience, right? And uh, we have a lot of negative shared experiences when we're working together with a team sometimes. It's like us coming up against a stressful deadline or um, you know, surviving a round of layoffs or getting through a really difficult project, right? The, the negative ones are already kind of there. Humor, it can create a positive shared experience. Like you said, when we're laughing together, it's saying that we're on the same side. And because laughter and humor is somewhat subjective, if you make me laugh, in a way it's showing me that you understand me, 
that there's something that we connect and bond over that we can now become closer. And this is, you know, I went to Ohio State and uh, there's this tradition within Ohio State where, you know, one person says OH and then the other person says IO. IO. Right? Exactly. You got the call and response. And I will admit that when I went to Ohio State, I hated that. Because most of the people doing it were drunk freshmen at three o'clock in the morning, just yelling, O-H-I-O. And it's like, congratulations, you can spell a four-letter state between two people. But now I love it because I can be traveling anywhere in the world. And if I see someone with Ohio State gear on, I can say O-H, they say I-O back. And now we have this instant connection because we have this shared experience. Humor and laughter and a smile can sometimes do that same thing. Yeah, it's that same kind of shorthand that you're that you're talking about. Um, all right, so um, I was thinking about the nature of creativity, and creativity, in part, it's just looking at things in new ways. Oftentimes, you know, people say that yeah, there, there's no such thing as anything new anymore. It's just a recombination of things that were old. Um, humor, I find, is also uh, looking at things in new ways. Um, so, um, the question is, is the practice of humor kind of on a daily basis really a step toward generating the habit of creativity? Absolutely. Uh, humor and creativity are very closely linked, uh, because like you said, they're about finding unique or new connections or interesting associations. In fact, uh, in one study that they did, they found that students who watched a 30 minute comedy video before solving a problem we're nearly four times more likely to solve a problem than students who watch no video or a math video instead, because it's basically a way to warm up the brain and to change kind of that perspective and see things. So that's what comedians are doing. They're looking at something that everyone's kind of looked at before, and they're seeing a slightly different angle into it or making a different, slightly different observation that you see. So for example, um, I will tell you that I don't like mint chocolate right? And most people love mint chocolate, but it's like, I don't like mint chocolate because I've never been eating chocolate and thought, you know, it'd go great with this toothpaste, right? So that's just an, an observation about mint chocolate. And now it changes that perspective a little bit in terms of how you're seeing things. And that's absolutely true of humor. That's why we as humorous encourage people to keep a humor notebook, right? If you want to start to develop your skill of humor, keep a humor notebook where you just kind of write down the things that happen to you. Cause it's not that funny things happen to funny people. It's that funny people see the things that happen to them in a funny way. And I think the same thing is true about creativity. And so just having a little bit of a slightly different lens, you just start to see different connections. And then from that connection, you can kind of build uh, new ideas. So I think from this, we can uh, say that you have now endorsed uh, hiring smart Alex. Yes. <laughs> in a way. Um, I, 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 I was just, that was an attempt at humor. Yeah, no, but I mean, there, but in the sense there is, there is some truth to it of like, not necessarily smart Alex. You want to make sure you hire people who have the emotional intelligence of which humor is collect, uh, you know, closely connected to, but you do want people that think a little bit differently, right? Like the old ad, management adage says that if you have two people that think exactly the same, one of them is unnecessary, right? And humor is a, a perspective that uh, I think is valuable to bring to a team. Agreed. Um, you know, at least in talks that you've given or, or things that I've read, you haven't really discussed this, although you just were right at the tip of mentioning it earlier. Um, I see um, humor as a way of telling otherwise uncomfortable truth, uh, sometimes to power. Um, and you were, as you're mentioning, this is, this is what late night uh, talk show hosts do, political satirists do. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't know if you've 
had the opportunity to fully form an opinion on this, but if you have, what are your thoughts on humor as sugar to make the medicine go down? Uh, it, it absolutely can be a great form of, of sugar to make the medicine go down. Um, I mean, I've seen it in my own personal life in the sense that, uh, you know, I have a friend of mine who can say some of the, some of these things that would make you want to like punch them in the face. Um, that's like really to your core, but he also does it in a way that's also that it's just so funny that you can't be upset with them. Right. So in terms of like, oh, it's just, it's diffusing that because what humor is doing in some ways, if you get people laughing, you're lowering their defense. You're like, oh, okay, this is a fun, jovial experience. And once people are laughing, they are listening. And then you can kind of tell them almost anything, right? They're a little bit more open and receptive to it. So one, it's just kind of lowering those defenses in, uh, to begin with. But two, it is about how you're framing it. You're kind of sometimes framing the situation. So uh, my brother is a, a professor at Texas A&M, and he and I have been starting to explore the rhetoric of humor, the value of humor for things like influence. And an example that he likes to share is a group called Otpor which um, I can't remember which country it was, but it was, there was a country that had a dictatorship that was very kind of brutal. And Apoor rose up and part of their strength as a kind of um, party was their use of humor. They would constantly use humor as a way to um, motivate people or to, to share a message that otherwise would probably like lead to very dire um, situations, but because they used humor, it wasn't. So for example, at one point, this dictator was like, we're, ne we're not going to leave without bloodshed, right? You're going to have to basically take us from power. And so Oppor looked at it a little bit differently and said, okay, you need blood for this to kind of like happen. So then they started a blood drive and they got millions of people to basically donate blood to say, hey, here's the blood that you kind of asked for, but in a different perspective. And now they're kind of creating awareness around this idea. They're bringing humor to it and making these hard things to talk about a little bit easier, a little bit more accessible. Turn the other cheekiness. <laughs> I like that. I got skills, man. Um, you know, you might have gathered by now that I, I, I've been thinking about this fairly granularly. Um, and we started to talk about benefit, benefits of humor, both from an individual perspective and from a, a company perspective. And I was thinking we might dig a little deeper on some of those, not, not necessarily long answers per se, but just kind of, you know, off the top of your head, you know, from an individual perspective, uh, physiological perspective, um, laughing releases serotonin, right? And that's, that actually... That's the chemical that contributes to your well-being and happiness. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So it, yeah, it's it's a great, it's a very strategic thing to yeah to boost your overall happiness. Physiologically, it also burns calories. It boosts your immune system. It increases blood flow through the body. Uh, there's a ton of physiological benefits to it for sure. Uh, improves focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I mean, if you think about it, if one by laughing and releasing some of this stress that you have pent up in your body, you're no longer then worried about that thing that's causing you stress, which gives you a little bit of an opportunity to focus. Also, the chemical of of serotonin and a couple of other things that happen with it increases that ability to focus. And then the other thing is, uh, we are big believers that what gets fun gets done, right? Like in a sense of if you make something a little bit more fun to do, you're going to be willing to do it a little bit longer. That's why students who say, I have, you know, um, I can't, you know, sit in the classroom at all. And I, you know, I get antsy after five minutes can also sit on their couch and play Fortnite for four hours. Uh, right. Because it's more fun to do. Yeah. My son can do that. 
so yeah, I mean, actually, you just touched on another one. Um, it reduces anxiety, right? And frustration. That's the serotonin thing again, I guess. Um, partially, and I think it's also partially a, a perspective thing, is that, you know, especially when you can learn to find the humor in situations, even difficult situations become a little bit easier to process, partially because of... Um, you right, you're laughing away some of the stress, but also because it just gives you perspective, right? We we hear this saying that comedy equals tragedy plus time, right? That like that super embarrassing thing that happened to you in in school that you thought you were gonna die from embarrassment is now a funny story that you can tell you to your friends, right? With time, it's become more comedic. What's interesting though is if if we can insert comedy in times that feel more tragic it feels like more time has elapsed. It gives us a different perspective about it because it's like, oh no, this thing doesn't control me, right? I can find the humor in this situation and, and own it a little bit more. And so I think it also helps in terms of anxiety there. And knowing that, building that up over time, like, you know, one of the biggest things that improv and standup gave me was more confidence because I used to be one of those, plan I'm a, I'm a planner type person. I've had a five-year plan ever since like I was 12 years old. And, you know, I would feel confident if everything was going to a plan. And the problem is life doesn't always go to plan. So do you get comfortable? Do you plan for every possible contingency and are only comfortable and confident then? Or do you learn the skill set to be confident in uncertainty, to be confident in reacting to change? And that's what improv and stand-up can do, particularly improv. And that helps you, at least for me, help to reduce a little bit of that anxiety because it's like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. But I know based on prior experience that no matter what happens, I will be able to find a way to adapt to it. And I'll have a little bit of a sense of humor about it. You get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Um, the, you know, I was thinking about the phrase um, gallows humor mm -hmm. and, you know, turning, you know, twisting that just a bit. Um, it's kind of a, it's also a form of resiliency, right? It's, it's kind of a way to make it through to, to bounce back to, you know, find perspective in things that sometimes seem as, as if they may lack perspective. Yeah. It's one of those, I mean, it's one of the, the values or things that you can use humor for, and that is catharsis. It is, you know, ultimately humor. One of the theories around humor is that it is a release of tension and we laugh when we have this release of tension. And so if we can find reasons to laugh about a certain situation, it helps us to relieve that tension. And that's why you see, you know, EMTs, emergency first responders, um, police officers, firefighters, doctors, et cetera. Like if you're friends with some of them, you'll recognize that they sometimes can have a pretty dark sense of humor. And it's that humor that helps them keep that perspective because it, it's, it's preventing them from kind of breaking down about the whole situation. It's giving them a way to have this outlet that isn't um, completely destructive. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, a lot of EMTs in the comedy circuit, I would guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, all right, so just a half a twist again uh, onto organizations, right? Um, you know, th there's something about back to fun that increases loyalty, right? Like, the, I don't know if it really increases loyalty. That might be a uh, an outcome of it, but wanting to stay in a place, right? Create, you know, increase your longevity at a place that gets measured as loyalty, right? Yeah, it does. Well, and and I mean, just statistically, we know that about a third of people leave their company because of their manager. 
right? They might like the work, they might like the company itself, but they don't like their manager. So they're, they leave. Um, in a different study, they found that manager, people who rated their manager's uh, sense of humor as above average were a lot less likely to leave within the next year. And because it's a thing of like, oh, I'm spending so much, I'm spending eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day at this place. Am I having fun? Oh, okay, yeah, I want to stick with this versus all of the horror stories that I hear of other places or all the jobs that I had before this where, I don't know, some of the people that we work with, they're sometimes like, I never knew that I could actually look forward to going to work. I didn't know that I could actually have be friendly with my coworkers. And once you have that, you're like, oh, I don't want to lose that. What was this? Was it Project Awesomeness? Do I have that right? There was one employee that you were managing that was like, hey, I'm out of here. And and you initiated, again, it might not be Project Awesomeness, but something. Project, yeah, like, Project Awesomization. Among, awesomization, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, among and, things, and, yeah. and that kind of changed her frame, right? And, and that increased her engagement and made her not want to leave. It did, yeah, because she, well, and part of it, and this is a big part of the message that we share is around personal ownership is that we, and I personally believe that you are responsible for your own happiness, that, you know, that is not up to your manager to make sure that you're happy in your work or not up to your coworkers. It's not up to, you know, Steve as a podcast host to make sure that you, the podcast listeners are happy. Now, hopefully we do things that can help to contribute to your happiness and give you, you know, we don't detract from it, but ultimately it's an individual's responsibility to, to think about it. And so, Part of that is this particular person, one, was making it more fun for her, but also her seeing through me using humor was like, oh, wait, I can use humor too. Like, no one ever told you to do that. No one ever told me to either, but I can. So, oh, I'm going to make this more fun for myself. And it's yeah, almost you're making that it like okay. mission. Yeah, you're making it okay. Just like suburban women uh, to vote for a Democrat. Um all right. So look, that's the, in my mind, that's the easy stuff. Um, you know, understanding the why is helpful. Um, implementing a strategy to do this effectively, uh, properly uh, is a little bit harder. You know, I've tried to, to put things into my own words and, um, and how I've internalized, um, kind of what you're espousing here. Um, let me review some of, uh, of the tactics um, first one, actually easy one, have fun. And, um, I view it as the way that you have fun is you put in the energy up front to think, all right, this is what's going to happen. What wrinkles do I want to put in there? What, uh, originality do I want to interject that's going to improve the experience? Yeah. And I think that's a, a great perspective as a way to, to think about it. And so from this using perspective, we say the reason why we emphasize fun is because when people hear humor, it, they think funny. And so they think this really high bar, they think of stand-up comedians and, oh, I've got to tell jokes. And when we're talking about like, it's less about making it funny and more about making it fun. And in terms of how to do that, absolutely. It's about intentionally trying to improve the experience and think about the things you already like doing, right? You, you've learned through, through play as a kid, or you've learned through, you know, in college, the stuff that you like to do, you learned what music you like, et cetera. Can you bring components of those things into your work? Now I'm not saying like, okay, if you're doing data entry, do a shot every time you, you know, enter a seven or something like that. <laughs> but I mean, maybe, maybe kind of fun, but Oh, if you like music and you're doing a pretty mundane task, can you listen to some of your favorite upbeat music so that that process itself is a little bit more enjoyable? Mm. 
Yeah. I'm thinking for the I'm thinking for the self-starter crowd, which you know mostly is here, that you know, if it's garbage in, garbage out, then it's probably also genius in, genius out, right? So spend the time up front to because you get the multiple the, the multiplier effect, right? If you've got five people with you and you do one smart thing, then they they feed that in and they come with their own creativity and originality and perspective. Anyway, um, so you, you know, reframing experiences is another one. Um, you know, I think you talked a little bit about changing your uh, perspective, but also I think there's an element of rebalancing, right? Um, in here, maybe you could just touch on a little bit on that, um, or if I've you know, caught you off guard, I'll I'll give you a hint. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, well, so reframing, I think, is a really valuable form of humor. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut said that laughter and tears are both responses to frustration. I myself prefer to laugh because there's less cleaning up to do afterwards, <laughs> right? Like it's a way of changing your perspective about a a situation, and and. It's just kind of like saying, okay, instead of these are all the things that are awful about this situation, what is one thing that I do like about it? Or what is one thing that I can turn the humor in? Or, and, and this is where when you do comedy, if you are a storyteller or, or that kind of thing, it helps when, you know, speakers are an interesting breed because like when something terrible happens to us, we are like partially like impacted by it, but we're also kind of secretly like, this is going to make for a great story later. And it's like, that's already reframing the situation a little bit more. Or how can I re, yeah, how can, how can I turn this thing into a positive or how can I find the humor in it? But it is very much about that change in, in perspective, right? Because we, we can't control the things that happen to us, but we can control how we react to them. And if you can bring humor to it, like I said earlier, it, it removes a little bit of the sting from, from it. So, I mean, you know, just as I'm listening to you, it, there's so much about, thinking here, right? Um, you know, we talked about creativity and, and creative inspiration. Um, we've talked about a little bit about critical thinking. Um, define convention, right? That, you know, oftentimes we find things funny that are unexpected and they're unexpected because they're defying convention. Um, you know, all of these are I.O., Right. They're <laughs> for you know, as an engineer, as an engineer, yeah. they're they're all about, you know, generating IO that that is uh, here to four kind of mm -hmm. not standard. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and to geek out a little bit about it uh, as uh, and I will I will butcher this. But um, are you familiar with the reticular activating system? Selective oh. attention. Not at all. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I like that. Um, so RAS, reticular activating system, one of its primary functions in the brain is selective attention, right? Because we as humans, we're constantly bombarded by information. It's not possible for us to consciously process everything. So the brain says, this is what's important, this what isn't, here's what I'm going to let you know about. Um, this, our selective attention is dictated by what we give it, right? The input part, right? The I part. So for example, I can tell you, I could tell you to look around the room that you're in right now, or if you're driving as you're driving or that kind of stuff and say, look for something interesting. And that changes already what you're looking for. Or I could say, look for something orange. 
what's the first thing that you notice that's orange, right? It's my favorite color. So what do you notice? And already it's changing like, oh, all of this information that I could see, I'm now starting to see the very small orange that's on this, you know, uh, roll of masking tape next to me, or I'm seeing this very small orange uh, flower that's outside, despite the fact that there's a mix of green next to it, right? So I'm already inputting something a little bit different. And now what you're seeing is already a little bit different. This is the value of the humor notebook that we talked about earlier is by simply saying, I want to be on the lookout for the things that are interesting, that are curious, that are playful, that are fun, that make me laugh or smile or whatever. And you start to capture those things. It starts to change what you see how you see things, and then it gives you that perspective, right? It becomes this habit that you you notice over time. And so I think that that's what humorists are doing. They're just looking at things a little bit differently. They're giving themselves, okay, like if most people think this is bad, how could it be good? Or if most people think that this is good, what are some of the negatives about that situation? And you can do it for your own life, right? The things that you're obsessed with, the things that are true for you. Like, you know, I, a friend of mine not too long told me that not too long ago told me that I kind of look like U.S. soccer star Megan Rapinoe, which I think is hilarious. And then it's like, okay, in what ways is that true? Rather than being defensive about it, it's like, oh yeah, well, we both are in our thirties. We both love soccer and we both get called ma'am on the phone. There's actually a lot of similarities between these things. Very good. Um, I would just tell you um, that I often, um, I often uh, podcast while driving, just because I do like to up the degree of difficulty of my podcasting <laughs> when I when I can. Um, the last. Uh, yeah, right. And see, one, and so that's an interesting angle, right? We talk, I talk about podcasts while driving and it's now taking that perspective of recording a podcast as opposed to, to listening one. And that's where I geek out as like, let's parse the humor that happened. I know that's not for everyone. Cause yep. you're like, you just explained the joke. You ruined the joke for Steve. I'm sorry, but I love talking about this. Uh, no, I, I imagine that there's probably a lot of people that are just like, wait a minute, what's this Vulcan doing telling jokes? Um, <laughs> that didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, the last one, uh, also difficult for a Vulcan. Um, the notion that, you know, in the interaction, you're generating a certain level of empathy, mm -hmm. right? That you are uh, noticing things, which shows interest. Um, and you're also showing that you're paying attention. Uh, and you are interacting around that. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's all back to that humanness again. Yeah. And I think that it, it partially is. And it's 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 connecting to the emotion piece to say, hey, we are emotional beings. We're not robots. Right. That there is an emotion connected to it. And if I can then make you laugh, it's creating that positive emotion. Or if I can give you a little bit of perspective and, and be there, it's also showing a level of support. Right. And this is this goes a little bit to how you're leveraging it, because we can use humor as a positive or a negative. Right. It's simply a tool. So you could like if someone is very upset, you could then start making fun of them and laughing at them. That's not necessarily going to show empathy. That's going to show like, oh, this is actually make things a little bit worse. Or you can use humor as a way to show some of that support and that that strength. And if you can kind of bring people along with some more positive, inclusive humor, you help to bring the, you help them experience a, that levity, that light moment, that, that perspective shift. Uh, and this happens all the time with my 
uh, wife is like, if, if she is stressed out, then I'll find a little bit of humor to bring some of that levity, say, this is something that you need. Same, she does the same thing for me. If I'm stressed from something, you know, she'll say a, um, a silly joke or do something kind of a little bit, say something in German. She's German, first German I've ever dated, most efficient relationship I've ever been in. It's fantastic. Uh, but she'll just do something a little bit different that will then make me smile. And, and what it does is it serves almost as a pattern interrupt. Like humor is this pattern interrupt, both for communication, right? People, you start to drone out and like stop listening and then boom, someone makes you laugh. And you're like, oh, I'm going to pay attention a little bit more. Or same thing of like, I'm in conflict or I'm getting stressed out or that kind of thing. Boom, here's this pattern interrupt. And it gives me now the space for me to react more consciously rather than just subconsciously. Yeah, that pattern interrupt is big. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if we, I, we didn't talk about it and I don't know if you've even read about it, but I totally get that. It's almost like a reboot, right? In a in, in a way that you're you're kind of like whatever came before all of a sudden doesn't make any sense. You're all now start from that new data point. You're starting to make sense of things going forward. Yeah. Um, all right. So look, Andrew, that was actually the last question that I wanted to ask as prepared. Um, I, I I'd like to give you a little. It, it's clear that this is what you're good at. So a little bit of op-ed time. Yeah. Um, for you. Um, Something in particular uh, about the topic that that you'd like to address, or you feel like we didn't do justice to, or or hell, anything else really. I mean, yeah, something something that that you want to get on your soapbox about. Mm-hmm. Certainly, this is my time that I want to talk about the value of puns. Uh, no, I, I do love puns, and I could talk about the value of puns. In fact, uh, in the Iliad, uh, first known pun, written pun, uh, was in the Iliad. So go back to Homer to get that. Uh, Shakespeare had, I think, over 2,000 puns in his work. There's tremendous value in that people call it the lowest form of wit. But no, what I really want to talk about is, um, is just the emphasis that, that humor is a skill, which means that it can be learned. Because I think that, you know, we've talked about all these things and sometimes people will listen and they'll be like, okay, that's great, but I'm not funny. Or, you know, people hear that I do improv and they're like, I can never do that or I can never do stand up. And the reality is it's just a skill, just like cooking is a skill. Piano is a skill. Learning to walk is a skill. Learning a new language is a skill. This is just a a skill. So it can be learned. It starts, I would say, starts first with that humor notebook, just being a little bit more attuned to where you already make people laugh and smile and have fun today. And then being a little bit more intentional, like you kind of talked about a little bit earlier, like, okay, how can I bring humor into the work that we do? And then certainly from there, you can learn things like better delivery. You can learn techniques like comic triple or association, et cetera. But it really just starts with that more awareness and intentionality around using humor. That starts it as a, a little bit of a humor habit and you'll build over time that that capability because everyone has their own style or, or different sense of humor, right? Your sense of humor is a little bit different than mine. Uh, even my brother, so my brother and I were speaking, uh, as I mentioned, professor, um, we were speaking in, in Morocco together and in the elevator ride down, uh, someone there was like, it was so interesting to see the different styles of humor. Even though you're brothers, you have very different styles of humor. They turned to my brother and like, you have a very warm style of humor, like very kind of conversational and was very fun and playful. And then they turned to me and they're like, your humor is very cold. <laughs> and I don't think that they didn't necessarily mean like cold and like, you know, standoffish, but I'm clearly much more of a, this was planned. Here is the setup and punchline. This mm. is where I think you're going to laugh. Uh, et cetera. And so even though we're brothers, grew up similar backgrounds, right? Still a different sound. Everyone has their own style and it's learning to tap into what that is. Yeah, I mean, um, I think about, you know, I've been watching a lot of 
comedians and cars getting coffee in. And uh, one of the themes that keeps coming back in, uh, from all of them is, uh, you know, in the beginning, they all bombed, mm-hmm. right? In the beginning, it was just awful. They couldn't get time. No one thought they were funny. But obviously, they became very funny, right? So they learned. They learned what worked. They got better at it. They honed their craft. Um, hell, Seinfeld is kept every joke that he's ever written down. Uh, crazy. Okay, um, so question, op-ed question number two. Um, where can the listeners uh, who are listening to this um, uh, find you? I, I know you work with companies. Uh, I don't know if you actually work with people or whatever, but yeah, what's your what's your best way to get uh, interact? Yeah, so if, if people are curious and they want to learn more on, on humor as a particular topic, then go to humorthatworks.com. And so we got a bunch of free articles there. Link to the book that you mentioned um, at the top uh, is there. We do offer certainly workshops, some public workshops, a lot of corporate workshops. We also do offer um, group coaching and one-on-one coaching for different things. Our, our thought is we want, you know, I'm very passionate about this. And so it's like if someone wants to learn how to use humor, we want resources for every budget and every style to be able to uh, to do that. If they have specific questions or if they like love puns, if they're like, we want to hear more puns, um, then they can follow me on social media at Drew Tarvin. Uh, so D-R-E-W, uh, D-R-E-W-T-A-R-V as in Victor I-N uh, on all social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, all of them still on MySpace for some reason. Uh, wow. I know. MySpace is still in a, a website and I still have a profile. So uh, yeah, I guess you're OT, original Tarvin. Yeah, the, um, the OT. But uh, yeah, happy to do that. But the, the last thing that I would say, uh, maybe you're going to promote me for this, um, was just uh, even if you're like, I don't want to do any of that, you know, I'm tired of your Megan Rapino voice or whatever. Um, the big thing that we encourage is, is to simply smart, start with one smile per hour, uh, which is just kind of a slight turn of phrase just to say each hour of the day, try to do something that brings a smile to your face or the face of someone else. And in doing that, you will start to develop a humor habit and you'll start to just notice how small the thing can be. It doesn't have to be the big, grandiose, I've written 60 minutes of stand-up comedy level material. That's not the goal. It's here's this one thing I can do for my team or my one thing I can do for my family or one thing that I can do for myself in this hour that brings a little bit more levity to my life. Perfect. Um, okay, so the we've got uh, Humor That Works and that's got a bunch of stuff that it, that 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 is that is specific to you. Um, Going to ask you to go on a limb here. Besides the stuff that's specific to you, um, what materials, and books, things that you found interesting that helped you on your journey would you recommend that people also try and find? Sure, a couple of things. We'll pick one from each medium, maybe to help uh, with people. Um, I think from um, a movie perspective or documentary perspective, since you just mentioned Seinfeld, the movie, um, the documentary Comedian, is very good. It is basically after the Seinfeld show is over, Seinfeld retired all of his material and decided to start from completely from scratch and did a documentary about it. And it's to the point that here was someone who made millions of dollars in stand-up started over again with zero material, wrote five minutes, and then someone in the crowd who didn't know who he was asked if it was his first time ever doing stand-up, right? Like it's, it is a skill. It is something that has to be learned. So really interesting look there. Uh, kind of along those lines, if you're into podcasts, I'm a big fan of Good One. Uh, this is a vulture-produced podcast, but they bring on comedians. They share one of their famous bits. So my favorite episode is Gary Goldman. If you're looking for a specific episode, he does a 15-minute bit on Trader Joe's. So they play that bit for you, which is very funny. 
and then they bring on that comedian to talk talk to them like how did you actually create that where did that come from um you know all of that so i think it's i think that it's very good uh and then as far as books go uh i think uh, I'm going to go slightly different. There's there's a couple of books out there that are decent in terms of like the structure of comedy, things like uh, the, uh, the Comedy Bible from uh, Judy Carter. But I'm a big fan of a book called uh, Improv Wisdom. And this is Patricia Ryan Matson, And it's just about what what life lessons can you learn from improvisation and the value of taking it. Because that's how I got started. If people are like, I want to get started, but in a more simpler way, try an improv class or an improv workshop, or you know, we do free uh, virtual improv drop-ins every now and then as well. Like, Do that as a starting point because the, the, the risk or the stakes feel lower. But the book is fantastic because it's like, here are all the life lessons you can get if you learn the mindset of improvisation. That's great. I was I was sure that you were going to go with Born Standing Up. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, 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 I almost said it, but then I was like, you know what? I've already done two kind of like, it's similar in some ways to Comedian yeah, yeah, yeah. as a documentary, but oh, if you're looking for a second book, Born Standing Up by Steve Martin, fantastic. Groovy. Drew, this is the end. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I, you know, I think I said at the top, I think this is a kind of an under-considered topic. And, you know, hopefully if people have, gotten this far they've realized that it's kind of it's eye-opening in many ways right in terms of what its value is and so i really appreciate your thoughts and guidance here it's been helpful absolutely well thank you so much for having me this has been intangibles you can find this podcast on itunes google play soundcloud and many other podcast platforms you can also find it at its home on the web which is www intangiblespodcast.com I'm Steve Berg thank you keep an eye out for the next episode